pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now having praised you and repented of our sins and received pardon and grace from you. And now, as your children, we want to hear from your word. So we pray that you would instruct us in the power of your spirit so that we would commit ourselves more and more to our great king, high priest and prophet, the Lord Jesus himself. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our scripture text this morning is back in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. You'll find that on page 845 of the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a warning. This is not a typical Mother's Day text, okay? Uh, but I will make some special application to mothers uh, later on in the sermon. Um, Mark chapter 9, we've seen uh, just prior to this that the disciples gathered together to ask Jesus, who was the greatest? Probably one of the most foolish questions they asked him during his earthly ministry. And then they even tried to stop someone else who was ministering in Jesus' name by casting out a demon uh, because he wasn't following them. Not because he wasn't following Jesus, but because he wasn't following the disciples. Now on the heels of that, we read Jesus' comments. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. A young father with children had a conversation with another parent. And during that conversation, the topic of children's sports came up. And the father, in the conversation with this person, said that he would not allow his children to play organized sports on the Lord's Day. For that was reserved for worship and rest. And the person who called herself a Christian said to the father, Wow! You're a serious Christian, aren't you? To which the father replied, Is there any other kind of Christian than a serious Christian? And that's really the importance of this text today, that Christianity is serious business. And that's not to say that we're always uh, uh, having a sense of, of uh, weightiness about us, that we're uptight, that we're uh, judgmental towards other people, that we're critical, or that we're boring but rather that we take our relationship with the Lord Jesus more seriously than anything else in life. For actually, Jesus considers that his relationship with us is the most important relationship in our lives. 
And it's for that reason that he gives several warnings in this passage about not allowing other things, in particular sin, to creep in the way so that they come between us and Christ. Now, I'll just tell you, these are hard sayings that Jesus gives. Very difficult. Not just because some of them are difficult to understand, as we'll see, but they're also difficult to receive. And as a pastor who's called to preach the whole counsel of God and to not tear out certain pages of the Bible, this is a difficult passage to preach to the people that you love and you care for. For it is often, uh, or it is a passage of rebuke to us. Because it tells us not to let anything come between us and Christ. There are some very important lessons that Jesus holds dear to himself. In fact, if you were to look through the other Gospels, you would see some of these same sayings in different contexts. And that's because Jesus, as an itinerant preacher, who's going throughout the countryside and preaching to various crowds would preach some of the same messages because some of the same central truths about the Christian life and about his gospel of grace are so important. They need to be repeated to everyone. And not only was he telling everyone, but he had a particular tactic, as often itinerant preachers did. Those disciples who would follow with Jesus, wherever he would go, they would hear the same messages repeated. The same phrases, the same sentences, the same warnings. Because you see what Jesus was doing in them is instilling into their hearts and into their minds these most central truths about their relationship to him. So that then when they would walk away after he was raised from the dead, they would recall to mind those same lessons again and again and again. And Jesus has some very important things to tell us. And the disciples were to take note of the things that were so important to Jesus so that they would take note of how important their relationship with him is to be. Let me say two broad things with several subpoints. But here's the first. What we are to guard for Jesus. What we are to guard for Jesus. Here's the first thing. We are to guard the faith of others. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus speaks of little ones here. He's not specifically speaking of children per se, but referring back to what has just taken place where John has come to Jesus and said, Jesus, there's this man out there who's casting out demons, doing great things in your name, but he's not following us. And so we told him, stop doing these things. These are the little ones that Jesus is talking about. Those who are true believers, little ones who believe in me. Just because they're not following you, don't, don't cause them to sin. It's a warning that Jesus gives that we not, might not be a hindrance to anyone who believes. And I think one of the things that Jesus is sort of hinting at here is that he prizes every disciple in his kingdom. 
you may not have the most prominent position in the kingdom of God. You may not have the most uh, upfront position in the church, but Jesus prizes the most little disciple. So much so that he gives a warning to his own people. Do not cause any of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, to cause to sin literally means to cause to stumble. The root word is scandalon. It's the same word, if you remember, when Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ and then just a moment later became a stumbling stone to Jesus by saying that Jesus would never go to the cross. That's the same word. Peter was a scandalon, a stumbling stone to Jesus to try to lure him away just as Satan had done in the wilderness from going to the cross and paying the penalty for our sins. And here we're told we're not to make others stumble. We're not to be the cause of their stumbling. Jesus wants us to take seriously the fact that the way in which we live before other believers can actually cause them to stumble. Now, certainly this can be applied to evangelism. We uh, go out into the world and people have a view of who Christ is and of the church by the way in which we treat them. I've seen bumper stickers, you've probably seen it too, that say, Jesus, please deliver me from your disciples. Unfortunately, we don't always have the greatest reputation in the world. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about our witness in the world. He's talking about the way in which we live before other disciples and the fact that that way can actually cause them to stumble in their faith. You know what it's like. You become angry and bitter about something and you begin to share it with somebody else. And before long, they become angry and bitter too. And all of a sudden, you've become a stumbling stone for them. Because you've led them down a path to where they're no longer pursuing the glory of God, but they're bitter in their own souls, maybe even bitter at God as what, at what has happened to their friend. And in so doing, we actually become a stumbling stone to them. There are many other examples. Sometimes I've even heard of some Christians questioning the devotion of other Christians to the Lord Jesus. Just like in that story where the woman says to the other father, wow, you're a serious Christian, aren't you? See, if we're not following headlong after Jesus, we might look at others who are and question them. Why are you so religiously radical about your faith? Instead, we're called to be radical about our faith in Jesus as well. Sometimes we lose sight of God's goal in raising our children and we become so committed to other things that all of a sudden we haven't led our children to the most central and important thing of life, which is their fellowship with Jesus. And in that we become a stumbling stone to them. Sometimes we set examples of sin. Probably one of the most common is just the way in which we speak and Other people hear it and they wonder, is that how a Christian ought to speak? Sometimes it's requiring other Christians to bend to our personal preferences about life in the kingdom of God. 
I remember hearing a story about a family that visited a church and they took their young children to the nursery, dropped them off and headed over to the sanctuary, all excited to worship the Lord and gather together with his people, looking forward to meeting new people there, thinking maybe this is the church for us. And along the way, another woman came alongside the mother and just whispered to her, you're not going to wear that in there, are you? And all of a sudden, she becomes a stumbling stone to the Lord Jesus. So that that person is led away from Christ rather than to Christ. Think of James 2 when two people come into a worship service, one rich, one poor, and preferential treatment is given to the rich person. And in that, the poor person now is caused to stumble as they wonder, what's wrong with me? See, Jesus is so passionate for his people. He wants to guard you. He wants to guard you from others who would be a stumbling stone to you that would cause you to sin, that would cause you to go away from Christ. He wants to guard you so much that he puts this warning here before the people of God. And he says, not only do I want to guard you, but I want you to guard all your brothers and sisters. And you watch out for their faith. You would care for them. Otherwise, he said, it would be better for that person to be thrown into the sea with this large millstone tied around their neck. Now, in the ancient world, they had these large stone, cylindrical stones that could only be moved with some kind of beast of burden. An oxen so large that if it was tied around your neck, you, you could just be ripped in half when you're tossed into the sea. Jesus says it would be better for that to be true of you than you, for you to cause one of my people to stumble. See, we ought to have such a concern for other believers that we want to guard their faith by the way in which we love Jesus. And so here he says, guard the faith of others, but also he says, guard ourselves from sin. He turns from the concern that we should have for other believers to now having concern for our own souls against the destructive powers of sin. Actually, Jesus gives us three commands that reveal the seriousness of sin. He says here in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now he's referring here to our hands, our feet, and our eyes. As if in a metaphorical saying, what we do, where we go, and what we see. Those things ought to be pure and righteous, he says. And he's speaking here about the total Christian life in some sort of hyperbole. He's not meaning meaning us to literally tear out our eyes or cut off our hands because you'd still sin. But he's just saying, now here's the seriousness of it. If sin is so destructive in your life, if it will tear you to pieces, then take every measure that you possibly can to get rid of it. I think Jesus' concern here for the people of God is simply the concern 
that we become conformed to his image. That we not be those people who look upon his grace and say, thank you for the forgiveness. And now I'll go about my merry way. But those people who are very, very serious about getting rid of sin. When I took a scuba diving class, one of the things that our scuba diving teacher had us do was to do what he called the weight belt swim. Now, when you put on your scuba diving equipment, you're usually positively buoyant. That means you float to the surface. So you wear a weight belt to make you neutrally buoyant so that when you're um, in the water, you stay at the same depth. And what he had us do was to put on three times the weight that we would need without all of the equipment, enough that would make you sink to the bottom very rapidly. And we had to swim three lengths of an Olympic-sized pool. Now, I've grown up playing football and different sports. I've worked hard construction, long days. I have never had a moment in my life where I was as tired as I was after that weight belt swim. I got out of the water. I was dizzy. I couldn't see straight. I was so fatigued, all I wanted to do was lay down on the deck of the pool and go to sleep. And the point of the exercise was to say, don't be stupid if something is going to take you to the bottom, if it's going to destroy your life, get rid of it. So that whenever you're out in the water and something happens, the first thing you do is you get rid of your weight belt so that you can get back to the surface. And Jesus is saying, if there's something that's going to destroy your life and sin brings destruction to people, then what are you doing holding on to it? Get rid of it. Cut it off. Tear it out. Remove it in any way that you can. Friends, we need to ask ourselves these hard questions. What do you do with your time? What do you do with your time? Sometimes it's the most innocent things, but like I told the children, they become all-consuming and they draw you away from Christ. And in that, they are not neutral things. They are things that we've elevated to the position of being godlike because they take so much energy from us. Where do you go? Where do you go in life? Where do you take yourself? And is it destructive and harmful to you? Are there places of temptation that you still pursue and go to thinking, well, I can handle that? Or do you go to places just as an escape? Just to get away from the pressures of life and not realizing just how damaging it is to your own soul. What do you look at? What do you look at? Now certainly the obvious implication here is, is a particular sexual sin and often it's been applied to that. And that is true. What are we looking at? And are we taking radical measures to get rid of it. But it's not just looking at various things like that, but movies, TV shows, anything that we see that when you get done with it, you wonder, am I any closer to Christ? Or am I farther away from Him from having looked at that? That's the thing that Jesus wants us to take into consideration. What kind of damage are we doing to our souls with our own sin? Jesus repeats this lesson over and over. 
we ought to be so concerned for it would be better, he says in verse 43, for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. He says that three times over, it's better to go into eternal life maimed physically than to go to the unquenchable fire of hell. Now this word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And it refers to a particular place. Outside the southwest corner of Jerusalem, there was a valley, the Hinnom Valley. And it was a place of human sacrifice during the time of King Hezekiah and King Manasseh. A despicable place. When those things were outlawed, it became a trash dump. One in which fires burned continually to burn off all the garbage. And Jesus is using it here as an example that there's an unquenchable fire that will never, ever be satisfied. He even goes on, Mark does here in quoting Isaiah in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What good is it if we have all the things that this world has to offer? If our bodies are as beautiful as they possibly could be? And yet he says we end up going to hell. Where there's great pain and torment. Forever and ever. Jesus so loves his people. He says take my warning seriously. I do not want this to happen to you. And in fact, it's as if the Father in sending the Son on the cross is not only paying for the penalty of our sins, but saying to all of His church, now look at how seriously I take sin. So seriously that I would kill my own Son to satisfy the just requirements of the law. Do you see what damage your sin will do? It only brings death. So he says, be very, very careful. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. Lest you be taken in by it and destroyed. The second thing is this. Not only what we are to guard for Jesus, but this. What we are to give to Jesus. What we are to give to Jesus. And the first thing is this. Our willingness to be refined. Our willingness to be refined and purified. He says in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Now that's a strange saying, particularly to us, but the Jews in Jesus' day would have some sense of what he was speaking of, for they would know the symbolism of fire and salt, particularly as they relate to temple sacrifices. Fire was what was to consume the burnt offering. In fact, it was to completely consume it. Nothing was to be held back from God. Nothing was to be reserved for the worshiper, but rather everything was to be given to God. It's reminiscent of what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We don't offer animals on an altar. We offer our whole lives to God. So that we give him everything about ourselves, what we do, where we go, what we see, what we think, what we say, 
the affections of our heart. Everything is to be offered to Christ. Now, in those Old Testament sacrifices, salt was to be added. They sprinkled salt on top of the sacrifice as it was burning. And what Jesus is saying here when he says everyone that is a believer will be salted, not with salt, literally, but with fire. In other words, if you're a believer, there will be refining fires in your life. Fires that will purify you as you give yourselves to Christ unreservedly and wholeheartedly. Peter, as you know, as we've said before, is behind the writing of Mark's gospel. Peter heard this and would apply it later to the church. He says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why will we rejoice? Because we will be so refined by the fiery trials of life that when we see Jesus, we've spent our whole lives giving ourselves to him and we want to be with him. So we rejoice at the glory that is to come. What Jesus is saying here is that there ought to be a willingness within our own hearts to be refined by the fires that life brings to us. Now, I know that many of you have gone through fiery trials just in the short time that we have been here. And what you need to know is just like Peter writes to the church, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus is purifying you. He's salting you with fire because he loves you so much he does not want anything to come between you and him. He knows the destructive power of our sin. And so he says, now, you may not put forth the effort to cut it off or to tear it out, but I will because I love you that much. And so he asks us simply to have a willingness in ourselves to be refined. He also asks that we give this to Jesus. And that is our efforts to purify the world. He says here in verse 49 or 40 or 50, excuse me, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves, Jesus says. Now, he's speaking in an age that has no refrigeration and salt was used to purify and to preserve meats. It was actually vital. If if salt was not in the world, most people would actually have starved because they could not keep enough meat, fresh meat, around. And so salt was vital. Salt has a, a bite to it. And in that way, as we go out into the world, as people who are being refined by the fiery trials, people who are seeking to cut off our sin and live for Jesus, there's a bit of a bite to us as well. Not because we're seeking to be offensive to people, but because the way in which we live our lives reveals the darkness within them. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, that people love the darkness and they hate the light. 
When the light comes into the world, there's a sense of which people feel ashamed of who they are and what they've done. And so in that sense, there's a, a bite to our presence in the world. But it ought to have a, a refining, a purifying, even preserving effect upon the world. When Sally and I lived in Columbia, Missouri, doing campus ministry at the University of Missouri, Samuel was only about four months old when we went to a football game at the University of Missouri. They were playing Kansas State, which I believe was ranked number two at the time. It was a very exciting game. If Kansas State won the game, they were going to the Orange Bowl to play for the national championship. The stadium was packed. We were in the student section. Nobody sat down the entire game. People were screaming and screaming. And there's Samuel, a little four-month-old, as only babies can do in that kind of setting, sleeping on our shoulder. We're passing him back and forth. He didn't wake up the entire first half. And then halftime came, and people began to go to the concession stands, and Samuel woke up. The students who had been sitting behind us were about the most foul-mouthed people that I've ever heard. In the entire first half, they spoke of these terrible things that they want to do to the other team and use curse words and all of these things. And they came back from the concession stand. And they sat in their seats and the game began to start the second half. And Samuel opened his big blue eyes and looked at them. And all of a sudden they were so captivated by him. They weren't cursing anymore. They weren't slandering people anymore. The rudeness had gone away because they were so captivated by this little baby. And you see, in a similar sense, when we go out into the world, the way in which we have the presence of Jesus is to be a similar, refining, purifying presence. So that when people look at us, yes, sometimes they will rebel against us. They will be <clears throat> angry at us. But there are other ways in which we will have a sanctifying, purifying presence in the world. Now, I said I wanted to make a particular application to mothers. I do. This is not specifically to mothers, but ladies in general. I think ladies often have a refining presence in people's lives that men do not have. I don't know how many men have ever straightened up their act because of a woman. You may remember the movie, As Good As It Gets. Jack Nicholson plays the part of an obsessive, compulsive, disordered person. And he's got all these particularities and oddities. And besides that, he is a very angry and hostile person. And yet he falls in love with this, this woman. And he can't get her off of his mind. And before they begin to date, he takes her out to dinner. And he says to her, you make me want to be a better man. And I'm sure that there are many men in the world who have sought to be a better man just because... They want to win a woman. But you know, women have this power within even their own families to be a, a purifying and sanctifying presence. So that when mom's around, oftentimes there's a different feel to the family. Or when a woman, a lady is present, people begin to act just a little bit differently. And moms, one thing that I would encourage you and all ladies as well. Pursue Christ. There's a great power there. A great power to set an example and to influence 
for the sake of the kingdom. But what you don't want to do, because there's a warning in that power as well, is to use that power simply so that people do the things that you want them to do, but rather so that they do the things that Jesus wants them to do. And the way in which you safeguard against that is to run headlong after Christ, pursue Him wholeheartedly, that you might have a refining presence in your own families and with the people that you love the most. Now, Jesus asked the question here in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Odd saying. Basically, the way in which people mined salt was to go to areas where there were mineral deposits, particularly around the Dead Sea, and they would gather up, scoop up uh, jars of salt. But, of course, it's not refined salt, and so it's going to be mixed with sand. And as someone put a jar up on their shelf and a, and a wife would begin to cook with it or use it to purify and preserve meats, by the time she got to the bottom, the sand would have sifted down. And there's nothing left in the jar but salty sand. And Jesus is saying, now, if, if your salt has lost its saltiness, if it's turned to sand, how can you may, make it salty again? It's a warning. Don't presume that all of a sudden you can get your salt back, your, your purity and your love for Jesus. For if you let sin rule your life, you may just lose your saltiness and not be able to make it salty again. But our joy, our joy in the Lord, our delight in serving Him, our delight in making His glory, His beauty, His love, His graciousness manifested in the world ought to make us want to be those people who guard ourselves so that we could be a blessing to the world. Well, there's one final thing here. Let me close with this. We also give our efforts to promote peace. You notice what Jesus joins together here at the last verse. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now I said salt has a bite and too much of it can actually ruin our food. And our righteousness, our, our love is to have a bite to it. But sometimes we pour it on a little too heavy. And our pursuit of righteousness actually becomes bitterness. You see, that bite should never cause division in the church of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a graciousness about us as well. And so he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Or maybe, but be at peace. Don't let your pursuit of righteousness lead you into being so judgmental towards other people that there's no longer any peace in the church. But rather let it lead you to love one another. We close with this story. I'm heard the story of a man who was a minister uh, and later on in his years when he was a very elderly man his wife had become so incapacitated that he put her in a nursing home and they moved from Florida to South Carolina to do so 
Now, he had been a minister in Florida and many other states. He had planted churches around the country. He had faithfully served Christ his whole life. And when he moved to South Carolina, he transferred his membership from one presbytery, that's the ruling body of the church in that particular area, to another presbytery so that he could be a chaplain in his wife's nursing home. Now, I'm sure he did that for his wife in part. But somebody stood up and asked him on the floor of Presbytery. Here's a man who has gone through a battle with cancer, who is hobbled by arthritis, who is nearly blind in both eyes. And somebody asked him, why do you want to transfer to this Presbytery so that you can go be a chaplain in this nursing home? Aren't you ready to retire? And the man simply said, because I want to finish strongly. Now here's a man who knew what it was like to guard himself for Christ and to give himself to Christ his whole life. Never looking forward to those days when he could simply sit quietly and serve himself. Rather a man who wanted to give everything to Christ. And that's what Jesus is asking us here. Guard yourselves. Guard one another and give yourselves to me. And the person who does is not waiting the fires of hell, but rather waiting that great glory and paradise that's to come. May that be our joy as well to spur us on to give ourselves to Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us that we have not guarded ourselves for Jesus or completely are given ourselves to him we thank you for your graciousness that there's always forgiveness and we pray for your strength we recognize that you love us so much that not only have you died for us but you you tell us difficult things at times because you want us to be as close to you as we possibly can help us in that we pray for jesus sake amen